to your Bibles at page 1186. It's 1 Thessalonians 1 to 10. Paul, Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia. Your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this wonderful letter called 1 Thessalonians. And I do pray as we journey through it that you would speak to our hearts and minds from it to strengthen us, to encourage us and to help us to live faithfully for you and just encourage us today as we learn about this young church and how they persevered in the faith. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, the art of forgery is an old subject. Uh, I'm sure you'll not be surprised to hear this. The art, and some would say crime, of forgery has been practised since ancient times. I think it goes all the way back to 80 BC uh, when the Romans prohibited the falsification of documents that transferred land to areas. And in our world today, there's no shortage of ways that people try and forge things. Uh, typically, to try and make some money, though not always. Uh, and I do get interested with some of the shows you see on TV with uh, forged artworks or genuine. You work out which they are. Well, the experts take you through it. And in my reading, here are two of my favourites in terms of forges or forges and forgeries that were found out. Uh, the first one is a guy called Londoner Stephen Jory who had quite an impact on the Bank of England in terms of £20 notes. Uh, that's him there. 
Um, he died at the age of 57 in 2006, and he was one of Britain's greatest forgers. I don't know if you've heard of him. He was, was responsible for literally millions of pounds of forged designer label perfumes. Uh, they understand he made, I think it was over 300 million pounds of them. Uh, but he was also very good at turning his hand to impersonating the British pound. And such was his ability to produce 20-pound notes. The Bank of England was forced to change the design of the 20-pound note uh, and add extra security features. They even fooled the notes, uh, UV, counterfeit UV counterfeit detectors, and in some places, uh, the banks just kept redistributing through the um, economy. And so they had to change them. Now, another one was this guy called Sean Greenhill, and I do love this story. Um, he was arrested for forgery of art and perfume, and when he'd been arrested, he later admitted that he'd once created a fake Egyptian statue in just three weeks in the garden shed. That's it there on the left. Now, you might ask, how good was the statue? Well, this is how good it was. It fooled the experts at both the British Museum and also the auction house of Christie's, where it was valued at a million dollars. This is about 20 years ago. Astounding. How would you be having bought it and found that out later? Anyway, that's life. Now, why do I start this way? Well, I don't know how you found the series that we've just been through with the Winter Sessions, For the Love of God. I found it fascinating. But I found myself in this conflict internally as we looked at what were some of the most inspiring stories of church history and truths that have come from the Christian church over that period, as well as being completely underwhelmed and embarrassed by church history, as you see, if I can say, the warts exposed in terms of how people have behaved in the name of Jesus. And there's been some wonderful moving examples of how people moved and shaped by the gospel have affected the world for good. But there's also been men and women not moved by the gospel, but in the name of the gospel doing some awful things, Christians behaving badly. And I couldn't help but think as we watched the material over the last three weeks, they're impersonators, they're fakes, they're a forgery in terms of the Christian faith. And the example that uh, I, I still cannot get my head around was reflecting on German uh, life back in the 1940s. And just the juxtaposition between the church leadership of the day, and you can see them there along with military leaders saluting Hitler as the absolute one, alongside the reality of Dietrich Bonhoeffer who stood against Hitler and the evil that was Nazi Germany. Now, if we've got Germans here today, I do not mean you any ill will at all. I wouldn't want to have been there myself because who knows how I would have behaved. But what you saw there was just this incredible juxtaposition between the fake and the real. And the question comes, how is this possible? I mean, you've got to ask the question. How do you get such a disparity between how Christians have behaved through history? And a simplistic answer is this, well, the people who shine for Jesus were genuinely converted by God to following Jesus. They were absolutely born again and walking in the Master's footsteps. 
But what do you say of the people who made a mess of it? Well, you have to ask the, this question. To what extent did they really understand the gospel? Did they really know Jesus and had they really been born again? Now, I can't answer that as I don't know them. But I will say this. It is amazing how any one of us, myself included, can be led astray by the culture of the day. And I wouldn't be too quick to point the finger at any one group or person. Because we are all prone to our weaknesses and our sins, even as we profess faith and trust in the Lord Jesus. But you have to say, whatever their faith was, it was not in tune with the Master, Jesus Christ. Now, I start this way, and I want to transition from the last three weeks to this week's, because what you see this week is a classic example of the vibrant faith of young Christians who rock their world in an incredibly positive way. And if you've got your Bibles there, do open up. It's 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 1. I think it's, what is it, page 1186. Getting a nod, good. Let's open up and have a look. And I want to just take us through the first couple of verses that introduce us to this letter before reflecting on the genuine Christianity that you find here. And there's no doubt that these Christians are incredibly sincere and they are the real deal. Let me read from verse 1, the first part. Paul, Silas and Timothy is the way the letter starts. And the letter was written by the Apostle Paul. It was also in the name of his companions, Silas and Timothy. They travelled with him. They were preaching ministry companions. And it's interesting, scholars believe that this was probably the second ever letter written by the Apostle Paul. It's one of the earliest documents penned in the New Testament. It's either the first or the second document written in the New Testament era. Uh, Galatians is the other one that is very early. I tend to think that's the first one written after the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And you've got this letter, which is really one of the first letters circulated after Galatians. And we read on, To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. And the church... The word there is where we get ecclesia from, ecclesiastical, and it simply meant gathering. It's those who gathered in Thessalonica in the name of God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They were gathering together under that banner, the Father, the Son, and you can see here already the belief in the Trinity because he also will speak about the Holy Spirit very shortly. And for those who are not aware of where Thessalonica is, as we think about genuine Christianity, I've got a little map there for you. And uh, you can see there Greece in the centre of the screen and the word Archaea, uh, which was the central section of what we'd call now the kind of northern part of Greece. And that was the regional name. Macedonia is the country above that, which is still there today. And you've got Athens uh, down on the bottom right and you see a straight above that Thessalonica. And if you trace the book of Acts, reading through... We know that Paul was in Philippi, Acts chapter 16. He planted a church there, did ministry. Uh, The jailer came to faith. He moves to Thessalonica and then he's run out of town, as we'll see, and then he moves to Berea. And then we also see after that he goes to Athens and then across to Corinth in Archaea, which is in Acts 17 and Acts chapter 18. So that's where he was and that's where this letter takes place. Now, when you read through the book of Acts, it's worth reading, do a bit of homework, read Acts 17, uh, 1 to 9, I'll give you the background. This is what we find when we read the description of what took place when Paul went there. Uh, They're a very young church that had come to faith very quickly, and when I say young, uh, the scholars estimate 
that Paul was with them at most for three months. He may have only been there three weeks. It talks about the fact that he was there for three Sabbaths in the Jewish synagogue. And it then describes him being run out of town soon afterwards. I tend to think it was three months because of other timing issues. It can't have been more than that. There are Jews there, but there's also Gentiles, non-Jews. And we know that because the description of them is those who turn from idols to serve the true and living God, which was typical of non-Jewish people. They were idol worshippers. And so it seems to be he was three weeks in the synagogue. He's kicked out of there. He has another, roughly, seven weeks ministering to a mixed group. And then a group of people who were Jews who were opposed to the message that Paul brought that Jesus was the Messiah, the promised one of the Old Testament, and also the Son of God. This was an anathema to them. They came, they found Paul, and they kicked them out. You can read the details in Acts 17, 1 to 9. And so you've got this very young church. They've had their wonderful leader come and then go. Now think about it this way, it would be like if Paul turned up at the beginning of the winter sessions at the end of July and he's gone, literally, by the time Jazz Church starts here. It's that soon. And you imagine if that's all you had in terms of teaching. This new message about this Jesus who has risen from the dead. And Paul can't go back because of the opposition to him. And you're now being persecuted for following this Jesus because you're following the words that this Paul taught. What are you going to do? They've been converted in dramatic circumstances. They've lost their founder. Do they believe what they've been told? We read on verse 2. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul is not downcast, rather he wants to encourage them. And he says, look, friends, whenever we think about you, we thank God for you and we are continually praying for you. We continually mention you in our prayers. And we look back on those days that we were with you and we just remember the way that you had faith and the way it caused you to work. We remember your labour that was prompted by love. We remember your endurance. In other words, you persevered in spite of the opposition, inspired by hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then he writes in verse 4, for we know brothers and sisters loved by God that he's chosen you. And you see, at the very beginning of this letter, It's a very warm, encouraging word. He's saying, look, we are praying for you. We remember what happened when we were with you and your faith, your love, your hope that caused you to look up to heaven. It caused you to look out to serve. It caused you to look forward in faith and hope to the resurrection and the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're so thankful for how God was at work in you. In fact, He actually chose you is what he says. And I want you to just stop and just think about this for a moment. The doctrine of election says that we don't choose God, God chooses us. And it's taught always as an encouragement for us 
that the God who began a good work in us will not let us go. He will hold on to us. And what Paul is saying here is, when we think of you Thessalonians, we think of a group of Christians, followers of Jesus, whom God chose and worked in. And I take it what he's doing in this opening chapter is he's writing to encourage them that actually you are the real deal. You've been genuinely saved by God. And he writes to encourage them, to enable them to keep persevering. And I want to go through three things as we think about genuine Christianity because we learn a lot from this small church that started so quickly that God did such a miraculous and significant work in. We learn what it really means to be a genuine Christian in an age of fakes and imposters. They heard a genuine message, they experienced genuine transformation and became genuine witnesses is what we're going to see. Let's have a look firstly at the genuine message. He says, we know you were chosen by God. Why? Because firstly, our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. And what Paul is saying here is this. I know people are running me down. I know people are criticising my message. Because that is what was happening. And I know they're trying to discredit me. But I want you to think first of all of your experience in terms of what you heard and who you heard it from. He says, when we came and we spoke the message of the gospel, how did it come? It came to you not simply with words. Do you remember? There was a power about what we spoke on and how you experienced it. Actually, the Holy Spirit was at work powerfully when we spoke. And there was a deep sense of conviction. Now, the conviction is not reflecting on the experience of the Thessalonians being convicted under God. And absolutely, when we hear God speak, we will be convicted. Now, he's speaking of the experience of the preacher, Paul, Silence and Timothy. You see, words alone are merely rhetoric. And there's no doubt you will hear some gospel preaching that is merely rhetoric. But genuine gospel proclamation is powerful persuasion where people don't just hear a man or a woman speaking, they hear the very voice of God addressing them in the gospel, calling them to come back, announcing that there is a God in heaven who loves them, who has sent his son to die for them, and the message is to repent and to believe the good news. And the Apostle Paul had known the experience of his words bouncing empty off hard human hearts. There's no doubt about that. He had some very tough times of ministry. And he knew experiences when his words did not come with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction in the sense of there was no response. But when he came to Thessalonica, it was different Paul knew God was working powerfully in this group of people. I know that experience myself, where you sense you are not just speaking your words, but God is actually speaking and addressing people. 
And it's a very powerful experience. One of the things we do every Tuesday at the prayer meeting, you're always welcome to come, is we pray for the preaching of the gospel. And let me say, not just for myself, but for all the men and women here in the parish who open up the word and speak it out. And we're always praying that it will come with power, that the Holy Spirit will fill those words, that there'll be a deep sense of conviction. And I encourage you to keep praying every week for the preaching of the gospel here in all the different avenues, through all the members of our congregation who have opportunity to share of the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are many. But the Thessalonians heard a genuine message, but secondly, they experienced genuine transformation. Whenever you see a great work of God take place, what you will see is a a very powerful proclamation of the gospel, but it's always accompanied by deep change. The history of revivals show this when God does a great work. It's accompanied by deep changes because there's a real sense of repentance, of people turning their back to God and finding healing in themselves and love in their deepest places that they know they are loved and accepted in spite of who they are. And they turn their life over to God and live his ways. And listen to how Paul describes the experience that the Thessalonians had in terms of what happened in their life. Verse 6, You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. And Paul is saying, look, our message came powerfully. We know that. But what also happened is your lives were radically changed. You started to imitate us and the Lord. And Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 11, follow me as I follow Christ. And it's that same logic. As I follow Christ, you're following us, you're following him. Why? Because you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. Just think about this. Anyone can be a Christian when the sun is shining. I mean, who wouldn't want to know the reality of eternal life and of our sins wiped clean? And being blessed by him. I mean, that's a great message. How do you know when people really believe? When they really trust God? Do you know when? It's when there's opposition. It's when there's suffering. It's when there's hardship. And it's at that point you really see what people really trust in. And what people really find their joy in. And Paul knows that it was a genuine work of God because he says, you welcome the message in the midst of severe suffering. With the joy given by the Holy Spirit. In other words, in spite of the enormous cost that was happening to you, You were rejoicing. I take it in Christ. And this was something that the Holy Spirit did in you. As you understood the gospel. And so you became an imitator of me and of the Lord Jesus who followed even unto death the call of God on his life as his heavenly father. And when times are tough, you see the genuineness of people's faith and how God is working in them to change them. 
to produce faith, hope, and love. And that's what you see here, a genuine transformation. But you also see a genuine witness. Have a look at verse 8 to 10. And you can put and here. And you see, and, and the Lord's message rang out from you. Not only in Macedonia and Archaea, your faith in God has actually become known everywhere. And just stop and think about that. We're not talking about just the local neighbourhood here. You saw on the map, Archaea is the north part of Greece. Macedonia is another whole country. And he says, actually, your faith rang out from you, not only in these places, actually, it's become known everywhere. In other words, they were the talk of the town. And when God does a significant work to bring people to faith, historically we've called it revival, but it's people coming alive in Christ. And when that happens, it's so remarkable, people talk. Therefore, he says, we don't need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. And they tell us how you turn to God from idols to serve the true and living God. In other words, there was this complete radical transformation that took place, such that everyone sat up and went, whoa, what happened there? And to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. There were two key elements in this message going out, the evangelism that was taking place. And the first was this radical transformation. They, at a very deep level, repented. In other words, they turned away from the things of the world. The idols that were commonplace, they got rid of. And they began to live for the Lord Jesus Christ in spite of opposition. And it was observable. And when people are genuinely converted, it's absolutely observable because their hearts are changed by the gospel in the power of the Holy Spirit. Their understanding is changed. What they love changes. What they find joy in changes. And it's a work of God. That's why Paul can say, I know God chose you. The fruit was self-evident. And so there's this radical transformation that is part and parcel of when a great work of God takes place and evangelism starts to happen. And people sit up and notice. And then secondly, there's a radical message that goes out. And what you have here in verse 8 9 and 10 is the earliest description written down of the gospel. Summary. They tell how you turn to God from idols, in other words, repentance, to serve the true and living God, and to wait for his son from heaven. In other words, you've got the resurrection whom he raised from the dead, and you've got faith there. They're in trust, waiting, believing for him to come, whom he raised from the dead, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You've got the judgment of God and the salvation of the Lord Jesus Christ. And these, Corinth, uh, these Thessalonian Christians had embraced it. They had repented and believed the gospel that Jesus saves. And they were now waiting for him. And this message was ringing out everywhere. Jesus is risen and he saves. And they looked at them and they went, wow, what has happened? 
And they said, Jesus is risen. We're now serving him. We've turned our backs on the idols of the day. We've gotten rid of them. We want to honour the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's an incredibly powerful evangelism that was taking place, that was being known everywhere. And it's worth noting, genuine Christianity is countercultural. Every culture has its idols. We might not worship things made with wood or silver or stone that is carved, but absolutely in the West, there are idols. The idol of money and comfort and security and pleasure are what mark out our existence here in Australia and here in Manly. And friends, we need to pray for a radical work of God in our own life that we continue to turn from them and find our joy and meaning in serving him. I want you to imagine this scenario. What if? Imagine there was a high-profile Christian who got sacked from his job because of a stance that he took for his faith. What if? Imagine he wanted to genuinely and sincerely let people know about the gospel. But because his company wasn't Christian, he did it on his social media account. He thought that was probably a better way to go. In fact, he thought Instagram, I haven't got a lot of words, I'll just put a picture up. And let's say, just being hypothetical, that he worked as a professional athlete. And he was actually very good. He was very well paid. In fact, he was one of the best in the country. Imagine that. So well paid that he was often in the media, often used to advertise lots of things, including the sport that he loved. And imagine his company wasn't happy with him because of the stance he'd taken on social media. They sacked him. And they told him that he didn't represent their corporate values. So I'm sorry, we've got to part ways. His stance as a Christian was out of whack with where modern Australia is. And we no longer want you on our books. Now, I don't know if you can think of anyone like that, can you? And imagine he responded this way when he met the management team and read this statement to the media afterwards. I'm sorry if I've offended anyone. I didn't mean to. Please let me know what I've done wrong. I'd like to try and make things right. However, please note this. I'm not going to step away from my belief that the true and living God has sent his son Jesus to the world to die for the sins of the world. I deeply believe that God loves this world and that anyone who repents and puts their trust in Jesus will not face God's judgment in hell but will receive eternal life. And while I believe it's wrong to sack me for my belief in Jesus and the gospel, I'm not going to fight it. In fact, even though I know it will probably cost me millions of dollars, I'm not worried. Because my hope is not in money or possessions. My hope is in God. And I know that I will have riches in heaven that far surpass the million dollars I might earn here. And they'll last forever. 
And I say this not because I am anyone special, I'm not. I'm a sinner just like everyone else. I mess up all the time. I say this because I trust that Jesus has died for me in my sin and actually he's the one who's going to take me there. I'm sad that I won't be able to play the game I love professionally anymore. But I want you to know this, my sadness is small compared to the joy I have in knowing Jesus, my Lord and Saviour. He is the one I live for in this world. I want to ask you a question. Do you think the world would sit up and notice Christians in a good way if that's how we behaved? And that's how we bore witness to this world. You know who I'm talking about, don't you? You see, every time I talk to non-Christians, they're completely underwhelmed. And they get this mixed message about the gospel that actually it's about having eternal life and lots of money now. And demanding your rights. Think with me about Jesus when he went to the cross because that's who we're called to follow. To imitate the Apostle Paul who imitated him. I mean he said as he was dragged out there and they beat him and he prayed to his father, Father, stop it. My rights are being impinged. I deserve better. No, he didn't pray that, did he? He said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they're doing. And friends, the reason I raise this is, why did the early church have such an incredibly powerful impact on its world? I'll put it to you that they said there is a gospel we want you to know, that there is a God in heaven who has sent his son to die for our sins, who has raised him from the dead. One day he's coming back because a day of judgment is appearing and if you turn to him now, you will be saved and forgiven and have eternal life. And it doesn't matter what you do to me, That is my joy. And as they took their property, as they persecuted them and beat them up, and even took their lives, they say, I live for Christ. And such was the power of that witness that people stood up and took notice and gave their lives to him. Friends, Jesus said, the first will be last, and the last will be first. May we follow in the way of the Apostle Paul. May we follow in the way of the Lord Jesus Christ. And may we follow in the way of these Thessalonians and be genuine Christians who lose all for the sake of knowing him who died for us. Let us pray. Father, in this world where there are so many different versions of Christianity, may we know what it means to be a genuine Christian, to hear the gospel and to live according to it. 
to repent of the idols of this day and to wait for the Lord Jesus to return from heaven who rescues us from the coming wrath. I thank you for the work you're doing in us. May we shine brightly. May we be prepared to lose in order that the gospel may win. And may our hope and joy be found in him, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.